Let's get cracking. Our next speaker, as you know, lives and breathes dangerous ideas. Because somehow, even though the birds do it, the bees do it, educated fleas do it, we've made sex dangerous and controversial. And uh, today's speaker is now notorious for arguing that the expectations of monogamous sex in particular are particularly dangerous uh, and boring and unnatural and a killer for long-term relationships. It has to be said though, and you might know this about Dan Savage, he does monogamy very well. He's been uh, with his very hot husband for nearly 20 years, I think it's 18 years. Together they've raised a, a son who's a teenager now, but he is a firm believer, as he'll explain today, I think, in what's called monogamish relationships. Dan Savage is, of course, the voice behind the cult uh, podcast, the Savage Lovecast. Who's a fan? <laughs> it's now in its 16th season. He is the brain behind the long-running uh, and internationally syndicated sex advice column, Savage Love. He's the editorial director of the weekly uh, Seattle newspaper, The Stranger. And his new book is American Savage Insights, Slights and Fights on Faith, Sex, Love and Politics. He'll be doing a book signing after the session in the foyer. And for the next hour of this wonderful festival, he is all yours. Give him a warm welcome. Holy fuck. <laughs> I have a teenage son, so whenever I speak to a large group of people, I take a photograph and text it to him and say, some people listen to your father <laughs> just to piss him off, which is my only hobby now that I have a teenage son. Uh, it's, a, it's a real thrill to be here. I was in Sydney 23 or 4 years ago for a month and went to uh, Gay Mardi Gras and had an absolutely wonderful time that I do not remember at all. Uh, but I was told I had a really good time by witnesses. Um, and it's a thrill to be back and to be here uh, as a part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Um, that said, I don't think that my ideas about monogamy are particularly dangerous. Uh, some people do. There was a Values Voters Summit in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and when we say values voters in America, what they mean is they value hatred and spite and controlling women's uteruses uh, and discriminating against uh, gay people and stigmatizing gay sex. But the value voters gathered in one of the speeches given was beware the monogamish uh, because they are coming to leave you alone because the monogamish are not coming to control you or tell you what to do, but you should be afraid of these people who are monogamish. But I don't think my, danger, my ideas about monogamy are dangerous. I think that they're realistic. I think they're rational. I think they're helpful. And I actually think that they can help particularly people who wish to be monogamous, who want to pull that off, who want to have a multi-decade, perhaps five-decade long sexually exclusive relationship or marriage. I think if those people in particular will listen to me and what I have to say, that it might be easier for them to execute that 
long-term, loving, committed, sexually exclusive relationship successfully. So, I come not to bury monogamy, but to praise it. I will open with some compliments for monogamous, monogamous relationships. Um, the upsides. Uh, there are certain advantages to being in a sexually exclusive relationship. And I think those of us who are not in sexually exclusive relationships should always be willing to acknowledge those advantages. Um, the upsides uh, to monogamy are you are safer from sexually transmitted infections, in theory. Uh, you have more paternal security, paternity, uh, in theory. And there's more emotional security for a lot of people in a monogamous relationship. Um, that said, uh, I have more to say about monogamy. Um, and I, uh, one of the things I always like to, to just sort of lead with when I get into this, this conversation is I'm not saying that everyone should be in a non-monogamous relationship. Uh, I'm in a non-monogamous relationship myself. It works for me. I have other friends who are in non-monogamous relationships. They work for them. They don't certainly work for everybody. And it is not typically the non-monogamous or the monogamish who are prescriptive. We are not the ones who tell people that they should do it our way or they're doing it wrong. Every day I get letters, whenever I talk about monogamy, whenever I mention it on the podcast, uh, I get letters from people who insist that because Terry, my husband, my husband, and I uh, are not monogamous, that we are not really in love, we are not really committed, uh, and that we're doing it wrong, that we should, if we were serious about each other, we should make a monogamous commitment and honor that commitment and keep that commitment. Um, I don't write letters to people that I know who are in monogamous relationships telling them <laughs> that they are not really in love, that they are, if they were really in love with their spouses, they would be fucking other people. <laughs> I don't do that. One thing I've noticed, though, on almost all of these letters from people telling me that Terry and I are doing it wrong is there's this... The, the, the couple of sentences that typically appear in these letters, it pops up so regularly I started saving them and setting them aside so I can write a vicious, vicious takedown feature about these people someday. <laughs> You'll get to the end of the letter and they will, they will say, you know, what you're doing is wrong and the example you're setting, particularly for young gay people, is wrong. Uh, and just for the record, every relationship I've ever been in has been monogamous. And what they've just admitted usually with that phrase, because I will engage with these people, I will write them back and say, what did you mean by that? Every relationship that you've ever been in has been monogamous. And they say, well, every time I'm in a serious, committed relationship, it's monogamous. And I've gotten a couple of these people on the phone and said, okay, so what does that mean? How many relationships are we talking about in your adult life? Oh, seven, eight. So you have made seven or eight commitments that then when you got bored, you walked away from. You've had seven or eight monogamous relationships. You are a serial monogamist, and you are telling me, because I am still with the same guy after 20 years, and we occasionally fuck other people, that we are less committed than you, that Terry and I are less committed to each other than you were to any of the eight people that you've broken up with over the last 20 years. The other thing I don't tell people always uh, that I often get accused of is that I'm fine with cheating. I think all people should cheat. I think cheating is okay. I actually don't think cheating is okay. There's an acronym I, tip I frequently use in my column called CPOS, which stands for Cheating Piece of Shit. 
Uh, and I apply that label to people because I am a judgmental dick, <laughs> as are all people who write advice columns. Um, so I'm not down with serial adultery and people being vicious to each other. I don't think people should violate commitments that they've made. If you've made a monogamous commitment, you should honor that monogamous commitment. I don't think, however, that people should be bullied into making commitments that they know they cannot keep. And many people cannot keep that commitment. And many people make that commitment before they realize that they cannot keep that commitment. One of the things that, however, does set my sex advice column and podcast off uh, against other sex advice industrial complex uh, practitioners is I do sometimes uh, give people permission to cheat. That there are times when cheating uh, or adultery or infidelity is the lesser sin. There are times in a long-term, multi-decade relationship when it is better to cheat and stay than to do the honest or decent good thing and divorce and leave. Um, those of us who actually deal with real problems, with real people writing us all the time about real situations, we don't have the luxury of just saying, oh yeah, cheating is always wrong, and we can just apply that standard across the board to all situations. I get letters from people who are in sexless marriages and have been sexually denied and rejected for 10 years, 15 years. People who are going out of their fucking minds because of the hurt of this rejection. And it, and, the, and the, the, the pain of this desperation for sex. And then they will add, they, they will say in these letters, we have small children. I do love my spouse. We have a great friendship. We have a great relationship. There is some level of intimacy there uh, and affection. My spouse is dependent on me for their health insurance and is ill. What should I do? And I am supposed to tell that person to get a divorce according to the sort of standard operating procedures in the sex advice columnist manual that we are all given when we get our sex advice columnist PhDs at sex advice columnist university. <laughs> I don't always tell them that. Sometimes I tell people to do what they need to do to stay married and stay sane, uh, and sometimes that is cheating. Uh, so I sometimes smile on that. Um, but let's set that aside. I write about that at great length in the book. There's a chapter in my new book called Cheating is Always Wrong, Except When It Isn't. And I would encourage uh, anyone who's tempted to throw a chair at me right now to read that chapter first um, before you throw a chair. Uh, so I'm not saying that everybody should be not monogamous, and I'm not saying that people in monogamous relationships are doing it wrong. I am saying, though, that we do need to start thinking differently about monogamy, particularly if you are in a monogamous relationship that you want to succeed over the long haul. There are lies, we are told as children, about love that... I think many of us see through, but many of us don't. And the people who don't see through these lies are really hurt by them. We are told that if you are in love with someone, you won't want to sleep with anybody else. And therefore, a monogamous commitment is the natural and obvious thing to do. And being successfully monogamous will come easy if you are in love. And the truth is that if you are in love and monogamy is important to you because of disease or paternity or emotional security or because it's what your partner wants and you make a monogamous commitment, you will refrain from fucking other people. Maybe. But you will want to fuck other people all the fucking time. You will want to fuck other people. And so will your partner. So will your spouse. They want to fuck other people too. One of the things that constantly sort of shocks and surprises me when I read the mail I get at Savage Love is all the time and energy people waste policing 
their partners for evidence of what you know to be true. (laughs) They want to fuck other people. That's why they're looking at porn. That's why they're checking out the barista. That's why her personal trainer is so fucking hot. Just because they want to fuck other people doesn't mean they are fucking other people, but they want to fuck other people. And you should be able to infer that person wasting all this time and energy policing your partner for what you know to be true because you want to fuck other people. (laughs) If there's nothing that people in long-term committed relationships could do to make those relationships a little bit more successful, a little bit easier, make monogamy a little bit easier, is stop this fucking game of busting each other when you uncover evidence of what we all know to be, we are not a naturally monogamous species. We are not. We did not evolve to be monogamous. Jesse Baring, who was here at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas last year uh, and has a new book out, Perv, which is genius and everyone should read it. Uh, his previous book, Why Is My Penis Shaped Like That? <laughs> Why are our penises shaped like that? Other m- mammals... They do not have that head on the top of the penis. They don't have that corona. They don't have that ridge. What is that there for? Why did, what evolutionary pressures advantaged that particular penis shape until we all had it? Multi-partner sex. The penis in the vaginal canal acts as a plunger. It creates suction that pulls the semen out from the other men that this woman that you are lucky enough to be mating with has already mated with. You are likelier to pass your genes on as a male of the species if your penis is a really effective plunger. (laughs) There's all sorts of other evidence that we are not monogamous. There's actually something I wanted to read to you uh, written by another uh, Festival of Dangerous Idea alumnus, uh, Christopher Ryan, who wrote Sex at Dawn, had this to say in his book. Adultery has been documented in every human culture studied, including those in which fornicators are routinely stoned to death. In light of all this bloody retribution, it's hard to see how monogamy comes naturally to our species. Were monogamy an ancient evolved trait characteristic of our species, as the standard narrative insists, these ubiquitous transgressions would be infrequent and such horrible enforcement, such as stoning, unnecessary. And then I love this line, no creature needs to be threatened with death to act in accord with its own nature. We don't point guns at dolphins and say, swim, motherfucker. (laughs) But we point guns at other people's heads and we say, don't commit adultery because we know we all want to. And many of us do. Monogamy is not natural. It's also not easy to pull off over the theoretically, you know, five, six decade life of a marriage, if you enter into it in your late 20s, 30s, now you're talking, there's a baby in the room? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I just spilled my water. Parents of the year, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate you being here, actually. <clears throat> Monogamy isn't easy. And isn't it, if you're in a monogamous relationship, isn't it more meaningful and valuable if it isn't easy? That your partner is making this sacrifice for you. They're going to not fuck other people for 60 years because they love you so much. And isn't it more significant if that is a struggle as opposed to falling off a log? Uh, I've 
frequently compared to monogamy to asking someone to stand on one foot for 50 years. Some people can do that. Some people have better balance than other people. But it's not an easy thing to do, necessarily. And it's kind of an arbitrary thing to ask, particularly if you make it uh, somehow a token or a symbol of their love and commitment, or the only token and symbol of love and commitment. Forty-ish percent of men in long-term relationships, some estimates, some studies as high as 60%, 40-ish to 50% of women in long-term committed relationships cheat at some point. That 40% of men to 60% of men and 40-ish percent of women, all those people cheating, they're not married to each other. The odds that infidelity will touch every long-term committed coupled monogamous pair are about 100% over the life of that relationship. We talk, though, about monogamy the way we talk about virginity. You're monogamous, you're a virgin, until you fuck someone else. And then you got your monogamy hymen popped and you are not monogamous anymore. It's gone. The monogamy is gone. Your virginity, fuck somebody, it's gone. Your monogamy, fuck somebody else, it's gone. We really need to start talking about monogamy the way we talk about sobriety. That you can fall off the monogamy wagon and then you can sober the fuck back up and get on the monogamy wagon again. Because the truth is that if you're with somebody for 50 years or somebody's with you for 50 years and your spouse only cheats on you, if you're in a monogamous relationship, a couple of times, a handful of times over the course of those five decades, they were really good at being monogamous. Not bad at it. Good at it. What we tell people, though, is that cheating is evidence of... uh, love having died, cheating is evidence of this person being a cad who you must leave to reestablish your sense of dignity and control. Uh, You have to dump this person. You have to divorce this person. Should they do what 50, 60%, 40, 50% of men and women in long-term committed monogamous relationships ultimately do? Cheat. We have, by creating this cultural script over the last century, because this did not used to apply to men, for most of recorded human history. We have, at the outset, before a couple walks down the aisle, we have written the death warrant for their marriage. We have signed it. This seems fucking insane to me, as a child of divorce. This seems really effing crazy. We know that almost all couples, long-term, serious, committed, almost all of those relationships, monogamous commitment, that there will be an infidelity, and we are telling people that that is an unforgivable sin, that that is a relationship extinction level event. And then we are surprised that the divorce rate is as high as it is. I am not saying that we should look at our spouses on our wedding days and say, you're going to cheat on me or I'm going to cheat on you. No biggie, whatevs. (laughs) But I do think that we should encourage people to speak rationally about cheating and infidelity and adultery and what will happen when it happens. To us, not if, because it's almost always going to be a when. And we should be able to look at our spouse and say, I love you more than I hate that blowjob you're going to get on a business trip in 20 years. And I promise now that when you fuck your personal trainer who's so hot in 15 years, while we're in some low point or so stressed out because of kids and mortgages and SATs, tests and everything else, and you fuck your personal trainer 
out of boredom uh, or anger, I promise to forgive you. I'm sometimes told that I overemphasize the importance of sex, and that makes my head explode. Because I look at a marriage, a monogamous marriage, we're talking just about monogamy right now, not about monogamish me, uh, and not about open relationships or polyamory, but just about monogamy. I look at a marriage, a monogamous, lifelong, theoretically committed relationship, and I see perhaps children that they are really invested in raising together, parenting together. Uh, I, I see property that they've acquired together. I see a history that they share, life experiences. To have that person in your life who was there, who knows you, who was, went through whatever you've gone through over the last 20 years. I see two families that have come together and, and become intermeshed, these extended families that now feel as if they are all uh, related to each other through you, through this couple. I see all of that. And I think, well, all of that has to be given more weight. All of that has to matter more than that blowjob on the business trip. And the people who tell me I overemphasize the importance of sex argue the other side. That all of this, children, partnership, property, family, all of this has to be discarded, has to be thrown away because that blowjob weighs more. That blowjob is more important That unforgivable blowjob or unforgivable banging of the personal trainer or tennis coach. (laughs) That matters more. That's more consequential. We have made successfully executing monogamy over the decades the definitional characteristic of a successful long-term relationship. And then we wonder why so many of them collapse and fail. We have to stop doing that because that is fucking crazy. And it destroys relationships. It gives people unrealistic expectations about what life and what love is like. And life and love changes. Sexual passion diminishes over time. The longer you live together, the less you want to fuck each other. It's just the truth. Other things compensate over time. Other things grow to be more important than sexual exclusivity or sexual activity. And yet we have set people up for failure because we tell them that if they're not fucking at 25 years the way they were fucking at, in mine and Terry's case, 25 minutes, (laughs) that they're failing at this love thing, that they're doing it wrong. And there's this mountain of data and research, particularly into female sexuality coming out in the last couple of decades, that just shows that this is not the way human sexuality works that we may be socially monogamous animals. We may pair bond, we may couple up, but we are not sexually monogamous. And the sexual monogamy uh, that we enforce culturally and on each other is really at war, really undermines our commitments and our relationships by making us believe that they are somehow failing when they are not. They are just not, they just do not any longer have sex at the heart of them. Sexual passion may bring two people together, may cement that bond, and then its importance diminishes over time. Hopefully it doesn't disappear. Terry and I still fuck. Right? But, I have video actually on my phone. Very recent fuckings. Um, (laughs) Terry would not like me saying that to you. But let's talk about monogamish for a little while. It's something that I, it's a it's a coin, it's a term I coined in my column to describe mine and Terry's relationship because we are a gay couple and we are not monogamous as most gay couples are not. Uh, we also have a child who is a teenager who's uh, killing us, which is their job at fifteen. 
Um, and it's a difficult and weird thing to be uh, gay parents who are out about not being monogamous. You know, the, the deal the culture makes you when you become parents is you are supposed to pretend you're not having sex anymore with each other, uh, <laughs> much less with um, other people. Uh, we didn't really want to come out about being not monogamous. When we first got together, we were monogamous for many years. Uh, when we became parents, we were monogamous. Uh, I wrote a book called The Kid, which was about um, our journey to adoption, uh, as it was always called for some reason. Uh, and in that book, in the first chapter, in the first three pages, I wrote about us being monogamous uh, at Terry's insistence because that's what he wanted, and, and I wanted him. And if you could, saw this video, you would see why. <laughs> you would agree to anything, and I agreed to that. Uh, even knowing everything that I knew about monogamy and how unlikely it was, I agreed to it. Uh, but a few years later... Uh, eight years later, I wrote a book about our decision to marry once uh, gay marriage was legal in Canada to, to slip up across the border and get married. Uh, that book is called The Commitment, sort of a sequel to the kid. Where are they now? Um, they're having sex with other people now, actually, was part of that book. And, and I didn't, we didn't really want to come out about that. Poor Terry. He's this intensely private person who married a memoirist. Which is never a good idea. An intensely private person. But when I'd written The Kid, I just mentioned that we were monogamous because we were and it was true. Uh, and then when I sat down to write The Commitment, it occurred to me that now with this bullseye I had painted on my back, uh, the religious right, the Family Research Council is always after me in the United States. These are those values voters douchebags. Um, a few days before the election in 2012 when Barack Obama was reelected, uh, the Family Research Council released a video attacking me uh, trying to associate Barack Obama with me uh, because we had been in the same room once upon a time. Uh, and, you know, they're kind of obsessed with me, and it's cute in this <laughs> weird way that closet cases get obsessed with out gay people. <laughs> but when I sat down to write the commitment, I realized that if they found evidence that we were not monogamous, they were going to put that out there and scream and yell and jump up and down about it and claim we weren't monogamous when I wrote The Kid and that we had lied about our relationship and gay relationships, we'd misrepresented them uh, in an effort to con the adoption agency and fool people into supporting marriage rights and adoption rights for same-sex couples. So I felt, well, we had to be out about it. And so I wrote about not being monogamous, much to Terry and my mother's consternation. And then the weird thing was, anytime as a gay couple you said you were not monogamous, even other gay people presumed a degree of promiscuity that just shocked us. Uh, we were and we are much more monogamous than we are not. Uh, we are much likelier at all times to be having sex with each other than we are to be having sex with other people. Every once in a while, we have a very special guest star. Um, <laughs> I was recently on The View, which is this program <laughs> with Barbara Walters in the United States. I don't know if you have it here. It's crazy. Uh, and we were talking about monogamy, and I, you know, I was... Somebody mentioned... Uh, one of the other panelists said that I was not in a not monogamous marriage. And Barbara Walters looked at me and said, how does that work? What does that look like? And that's where Barbara Walters made a mistake. Because I looked at her and said, well, it looks like... She said, what is it cheating? What does it look like? And well, I said, it looks like I'm cheating at one end of a guy while Terry cheats... <laughs> at the other end of that same guy at the same time. And I'm not sure if that's cheating or just really awesome Chinese handcuffs for your dick. So after a few years of people, do, how much time do I have? Pardon? Have, oh, good. Well, we have plenty of time. Um, after a few years of people just assuming that, you know, we were 
you know, there, there was a sling over our dining room table and a goat under it and boys in and out of the house all day long, which is just not the case. Um, I coined the term monogamish because we are much more monogamous than not. And that's sort of been embraced by a lot of people in heteroland in the United States. Uh, you can find monogamish all over OkCupid and other websites. I don't think that uh, monogamish means uh, open or poly or having three ways or having sex with other people. I think what people should embrace monogamish for as an identifier, as a concept, is it acknowledges the squish. It acknowledges the gray. And it acknowledges the fact that monogamy is something we may strive for if we're in a monogamous relationship and we've made that commitment. But there's going to be a little bit of bleh around the edges. It's going to be a little blurry. Sometimes some people I've heard use monogamish who are in monogamous relationships. And what they mean is they're just down with the fact that each of them is going to find other people attractive, that their natural, hardwired human desire for variety, new experiences, adventure, will be accommodated in a way where it's not treated as a threat by each other, where it's not held up as evidence that you are not in love with me anymore. And whether you get that variety, new experience, adventure, uh, vicariously through pornography or through shared fantasies or shared the ability to acknowledge to each other, just that, just that you want to fuck other people. Say she wants to fuck her personal trainer. Tell her to close her eyes and pretend you're the personal trainer (laughs) and eat her pussy. (laughs) And you are monogamish in fantasy, if not in reality. Um, I do think, though, that being on the other end of this experience, this uh, non-monogamy thing and being kind of identified with non-monogamy, I do, to some extent, resent the monogamists out there. And I'm drawing a distinction between those who are in monogamous relationships uh, that are happy and healthy and successful and those who are prescriptive about it, those who send me those letters saying we are doing love wrong uh, because of uh, how we do it. There is a lot of prejudice and there is a lot of uh, sort of faulty assumptions and skewed samples, really. Uh, Sometimes in the column, I will give permission to married couples to have that three-way. And I will will inevitably get uh, buried in a tsunami of emails, as if that's possible, all these ones and o's uh, piling up around my feet. I will get hundreds of emails from people insisting that my telling any couple previously monogamous, to have a three-way, or in some instances for one person to cheat, if I think the circumstances uh, allow for that, is to have destroyed that relationship. And the persons who write these letters will invariably say, every, every couple I've ever known that were in an open relationship or had a three-way wound up getting divorced. So everyone you know who's in an open relationship got a divorce. What about everyone you know who's in an open relationship that you don't know about? And those are most of the couples out there who are in open relationships. Most are so invested in being perceived to be monogamous. Most place such a high value on social monogamy that they're not stupidly writing books where they talk about being not monogamous. (laughs) If your parents have an open relationship, do you want to (laughs) know? Probably not. And your parents probably didn't tell you. You know people who are in successful, long-term, loving, committed, monogamish, or open relationships. You just don't know you know them because they're not going to tell you about it, particularly if they're straight. We gay people, we have a problem. (laughs) Uh, We have lots of problems. (laughs) At least 99. Uh, 
but monogamy ain't one of them for most of us. The problem is, sometimes we get too glib. Sometimes gay people are too open about sex. Uh, and, and that's, it's sort of a, a, a occupational hazard, if I may coin that term. <laughs> because if you've looked your mom in the eye as a teenager, your sainted Catholic, conservative, lay minister, marriage counselor mom, if you've looked her in the eye as a teenager and said, I suck cocks, which is what she heard when I said, Mom, I'm gay. It auto-corrected in her head to gives blowjobs to men in parks in the dark, which is not true. <laughs> Telling other truths about yourself sexually is not so scary. One of my jobs writing Savage Love, writing this crazy advice column for all these years, is, hel- is holding the hands of poor, terrified, straight people who have some kink or aberrant or non-normative desire. Dan, am I normal? Is this normal? Uh, and telling them that it'll be okay, and giving them a permission slip to go and do it. And they're so scared, it's so charming. Um, and gay people don't have that problem. You know, if you look your mother in the eye and say, I suck dick, uh, looking your boyfriend in the eye and saying, piss on me, isn't so scary. <laughs> but if you're straight and you've never had to look your parents in the eye, your gay parents in the eye, and crush them, and see them cry when you told them this very difficult truth that you eat pussy in the dark in the middle of the night. (laughs) Telling your girlfriend that you would like her to pee on you is, that's the mountain, right? For gay people, those kinks and whatever else, and being honest about who we are sexually and non-monogamy, this honesty thing, that comes easy to us. Because telling mom you're a cocksucker is the mountain. Telling your boyfriend that you want him to do whatever else, that's molehills. And for straight people... The kinks and the the non-normative desires are the mountains because they never had to come out about being straight because their sexualities weren't stigmatized. So we tend to, gay people, gay couples who are not monogamous, we tend to be honest about it because we couldn't be gay people without being honest about difficult and complicated sexual things. And we value that honesty and that openness in a way that so many straight people do not, Um, perhaps to their credit. There's something to be said for discretion and secret lives and uh, the excitement of a secret. I remember what that was like when I was 15, uh, and it went away. So there's a lot more straight couples out there who are non-monogamous than anybody realizes. A lot more straight couples who've come to accommodations, uh, where the husband is into BDSM and the wife is not. Uh, She gets sick of him asking. He gets sick of, you know, he gets so resentful living without. She says, if you loved me, you wouldn't want to you wouldn't keep asking me to do that. He says, if you loved me, you would do it. And finally, one day she says, go see a pro-dama, a pro-dominant. Go see a dominatrix. And he does. And he's happy because he got to live this fantasy. And she's happy because she's not on the hook anymore for fulfilling it. And there's a lot of couples out there like that. An estimate is like 4 to 8% of long-term committed heterosexual opposite-sex couples are open to some degree. Many more, way higher than the 50% average in most studies of same-sex male couples are open, uh, are non-monogamous. But in real numbers, there are more non-monogamous heterosexual couples out there than homosexual couples because there are so many, many more heterosexual couples than there are homosexual couples. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if these couples whose relationships have not been harmed by this openness by non-monogamy, but helped, but saved, could come out about it, could talk about it. Because we only hear about non-monogamy or three ways or openness when a relationship is destroyed by it. 
If somebody cheats and it leads to a divorce, you'll hear about the cheating. When the divorce is discussed, if somebody cheats and they patch it up, you're not going to hear about it unless it's Bill and Hillary Clinton and there's Ken Starr. (laughs) So we hear about cheating when it destroys a relationship and we hear about three ways when they destroy a relationship. We hear about non-monogamy, when somebody who was in a relationship that was perceived to be monogamous falls in love with the person that they were seeing on the side or having three ways with and leaves their partner, and then this colors our perception of open or non-monogamous or monogamous relationships because we only hear about the failures. If your parents are still together and have been in an open relationship all these years and the open relationship made them happy and brought them joy and maybe the reason they're still together all these years later, you don't know about it. That couple where the husband now goes to see the pro dom once a month to get that out of his system and stop pestering his wife about it and that release for him and that relief for her has made it possible for them to stay married. There's a case where non-monogamy, monogamishami saved a marriage and we don't hear about it. We never hear about non-monogamy when it saves a marriage. We only hear about it when it destroys one. And we have to remind ourselves, straight people do, that non-monogamy makes some people very happy. And people are likelier to stay together in a marriage if they are happy. The problem with a lot of marriages, particularly early marriages, is sometimes we don't know what makes us happy. And we've been conned, we've been led to believe by the culture, the script that's been written for us, that monogamy is the only way. Monogamy means love, and anything else is not commitment, not love as the serial monogamists are always screaming at me. And so we enter into monogamous commitments that we are incapable of keeping. There are people out there who can do monogamy. There are people out there that it seems to come easily to. They are the minority. I believe they are a tiny, tiny minority. But they are held up as if they are somehow normative. And their experience is held up as if it is normative. And it isn't. It's aberrant. They, the easy monogamists, they are the freaks (laughs) of the world. And all of us who are failing at monogamy, we are normal. And we should wrest that normative title from them. The non-monogamists, the monogamists, the open, the people who've cheated and got worked through it and stayed together. We should be able to talk about how we made it work. Because being open about these things will save marriages, will save relationships. And you know whose relationships it'll save, ultimately? The monogamists' relationship. Those people who valued monogamy so highly, if they have more examples in their lives of couples who got through the infidelity, who valued everything else that the marriage was about, placed more weight on that than that one blowjob or personal trainer, We'll save those marriages. And that's ultimately, you know, often what I think my column is all about, is making it work, figuring out a way to keep people together. Because as the Duchess of Devonshire said, divorcing is such a bother. (laughs) And I'm against divorce. Um, Shall we take some questions? We have about 20 minutes left, and I could run my mouth about monogamy forever, but I want to take some of your questions, because Q&A is what I love to do. Done you. Is that coherent well at all? Done. Okay. <laughs> you know I'm going to throw up. 
Now, we've got a microphone there, number four, number three, are they upstairs as well? Number two, number one. So get queuing. And you might have a question, you might have a comment. You've got to keep them fairly focused because we want to get to as many as possible. And uh, i got to say one more thing, though. There's one other quote I wanted to read from the book. Um, from Meg Barker, who wrote the book Rewriting the Rules, an Integrative Guide to Love, Sex, and Relationships. She describes every monogamous relationship as a disaster waiting to happen. And I think we need to make monogamous relationships not disasters waiting to happen, but relationships that can survive routine, common uh, incidents, infidelities, adulteries, because then they won't be... Dis- if we, they're, every monogamous relationship is a disaster waiting for happen. If we continue to def- define cheating as a relationship extinction level event. If we can get rid of that definition, we can diffuse the bomb at the heart of so many marriages and committed relationships. Let's go straight to the audience. Okay. We? I've got stacks of questions, but let's, let's get the audience, <laughs> starting with number two. Hi, Dan. Thanks for saying pussy at the opera house. Pussy, pussy, <laughs> pussy, pussy. <laughs> And for giving me a way to say pussy at the opera house. <laughs> Let's Ready? all say One, it together. Two, One, two, three, three. pussy <laughs> at the opera house. Um, you haven't commented on the um, difference between men who fuck being studs and women who fuck being sluts. And for me, that's a really important part of liberating people from monogamy. I just wanted to, if you wanted to comment. The... Sometimes when I talk about the difference between sort of gay sex cultures and straight sex cultures, uh, I'll get questions from people who say, you know, why do gay men behave that way? You know, bathhouses and park sex and all that anonymous and, and, and horrible, and in some ways dehumanizing sex. And I always point out that straight men would do everything that gay men do if straight men could, but straight men don't because women won't. Straight men can't behave like gay men. Gay men behave the way we behave, many of us, uh, because uh, we're men. Not because we're gay men. Um, and women, uh, females, act as a check on a lot of heterosexual males' ability to spin out of control sexually. And why is that? Do women have lower libidos? No. Uh, there is fear of intimate partner violence, sexual violence, rape, sexual assault, uh, slut shaming. There is a lot of... And then the way women are socialized and, and programmed not to see themselves as sexual. By so men, many, in pardon, some cases. By men, in some cases. By men, also often by women. By women. Uh, women participate in slut-shaming, um, sometimes to disastrous results, as we've yeah. seen with a lot of these suicides we've had in Vancouver and Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, and, and other cities recently where kid, girls who've been you know, uh, drunk at parties and then were sexually assaulted and a video was circulated. They weren't just uh, slut-shamed by the boys at their school, but also by the girls. Yeah. Um, so what do we do about that? I, I'm a big fan of reclaiming terms. You know, queer used to be a hate term, and now it's queer studies and queer this and queer that. Um, queer Nation and ACT UP were two groups I was passionately involved with in my youth and childhood. Um, and we took those words back, including faggot, dyke, sissy, um, breeder, that's our hate term for straight people. Uh, you guys can take that back. <laughs> and I think we should take back slut. Um, but it's going to take time to undo a culture uh, of slut shaming. You know, we tell boys that the, the more sex you have, the more, the more successful a male you are. And we tell girls that the less sex you have, or the more sex you have, the, the, the sort of less successful a female you are, the less valuable you are. Um, and how insane is that? 
that we are programming males and females to be sexually incompatible in some way. Um, and then wondering why heterosexual or opposite sex relationships never work out. So who's been on the, one of the slut walks, for example? That's Which been is a, a, terrific... a way of reclaiming that word. It and, is. Uh, I mean, it's contested. There's interesting debates around that. Let's take another question. Number one. Hi, Dan. A uh, comment and then a question. So the comment is, I'm happy to report I now have empirical evidence that turning on Grindr at a Dan Savage event does not create a wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> and that for everyone else out there, Dan will be available after the show on Grindr, he has promised. No, I will not. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my question is this. So the theme of your talk today seems to be one of the key takeaways, uh, one of the key encapsulations you've taken away from all of your years of writing these advice columns. What are some of the other takeaways uh, that you can sort of generate about the kinds of advice you've provided over the years? Um, eventually, when I find myself giving the same advice over and over again, I, I usually distill it into some acronym after a while, like DTMFA, dump the motherfucker already. <laughs> Half the mail you get when you write a relationship or sex advice column is people just say, you know, I love my partner so much, everything's so great, but... And then this list of, like, horrible, horrifying <laughs> shit just comes humbling out. It's like, oh my god, dump the motherfucker already. Um, but GGG, I think, is the big takeaway uh, for, for me, and just sexually, particularly if you are in a sexually exclusive relationship. And GGG stands for good, giving, and game. What we should all be for our partners and have a right to expect our partners to be for us. This isn't just me telling women to do anything a man wants. This goes both ways and applies also to same-sex relationships. You should be good and bad. You have to acquire some skills. You have to think about it. Sex is complicated and it doesn't necessarily come naturally. A, you know, a vagina is a lot more complicated than a violin. And nobody picks up a violin and nails it the first time, right? <laughs> And then there's giving, which we need to, you know, you need to be willing to give pleasure and invested in giving pleasure and able to take pleasure from giving pleasure without an expectation always of an immediate return or immediate reciprocity. Uh, and there are now, and uh, game means sort of up for anything. And I get in trouble now when I go on to this second part of the good giving and game talk, which is that one of the things that damages a lot of relationships is we are told that we should never do anything in bed that we don't want to do. That doesn't turn us on. And the reason this is a problem, I don't think people should do things in bed that leave them curled up in the fetal position on the floor in the bathroom afterwards sobbing. People shouldn't do things that are triggering for them or traumatizing for them. But recognize that we're all brought up in a really sex-negative culture. And when a partner asks for something that we didn't already think about doing or want to do or weren't already turned on by, often our reaction is negative. Like, no, ew, gross. Mm. And the problem there is that then you get people in relationships, you know what a Venn diagram looks like? You get people in relationships who, with the stuff they're both into and want to do, they'll have like 20% overlap or 30% overlap, which is then two people in a relationship who are 70% sexually frustrated and unsatisfied. That is not a recipe for success. You want to shove those circles together as much as possible. No two people can be all things sexually to each other, but the more GGG you are, the more relationship satisfaction you're going to have. Um, and now there's actually been some studies into my concept of GGG, uh, where they call it sexual, um, sexual growth or something, which means going out of your, you know, moving out of your own sexual sort of ideas, turn-ons, uh, things that you wanted to do and going there for your partner. And they found that uh, people who do this, sexual transformations, that's the term that they've used, uh, the, the researchers in Canada and the United States who studied it, um, 
they found that people who engage in these sexual transformations, their partners, obviously, who are being indulged uh, in whatever their kink or interest was, their partners report higher levels of sexual satisfaction, higher levels of relationship satisfaction, but also, too, the person who is indulging reports higher levels of relationship and sexual satisfaction and higher levels of desire. And so being GGG uh, is hugely important and can really uh, improve a relationship. Um, So there's that. And the last thing, and I'm going on too long, the last thing I always tell straight people uh, that I think is really important is one of the, the four magic words. You know, when a man and a woman go to bed together, you get, and this is what straight people can learn from gay people, a man and a woman go to bed together, they get to consent, they get to, yes, let's fuck. We're straight and we're going to have the straight sex, let's fuck. Um, and they get to consent and then communication stops because what is straight sex? It's penises and vaginas. We're going to stick my penis in your vagina and slam it around for a while and that's straight sex. What is there to negotiate about? There's nothing to talk about. So communication stops and when two men go to bed together, They get to yes, let's have the gay sex, let's have it. They get to yes, they get to consent, and then the conversation starts. Because who's going to do what to who isn't obvious. It has to be talked about. But that's in a relationship. Is that a generalization? No. This is so common. Fags, back me up. This is so common. (laughs) What happens is... Two dudes are going to go to bed and one or the other of them will look at each other and say, what are you into? And at that, right, fags? And at that moment, you're empowered to rule anything in or rule anything out. You can talk, you can throw shit on, not actual shit unless you're really kinky. You can throw shit on the table. And if straight people could take just that, and how empowering that would be so for the, women. So the question is, though, you have to be, feel empowered to be able to negotiate that. Not all well, parties the, are going to feel no, empowered not all, in all situations. Yes, they are. They are, okay. Because we are compelled to have this conversation. Straight people have to opt in for this conversation. Because if two dudes go to bed together, you have to talk about it. You have to say, who's going to do what to who? Am I going to fuck you? You're going to fuck me? We're just going to suck dick? We're just going to roll around like Boy Scouts and jack off? What's up? What are we going to do? <laughs> And so it's a conversation that a same-sex male couple cannot avoid, but it's a conversation that too many straight couples do avoid. It sounds And it it sounds like we all might become gay men after this conversation. Yes, you should all be gay men. Um, (laughs) What I want to do is take uh, a few questions in a row now. Yeah, so I'll I'll scribble them down. So number four. Um, Hi, Dan. Long-time follower. Um, You've talked a lot about... Uh, young people getting their sex education from readily available, often misogynistic pornography on the internet. On behalf of all the parents here, can you please write a sex-positive sex education book for young people and teenagers? I have a two-year-old daughter. I want her <laughs> to learn about sex from you. That's fantastic. Thank you. I get that, that request thought. all the time, and I'm going to do it. Hold that thought. That's a great call. I dare you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, hi Dan. Um, great talk. Uh, congratulations on coming up with a concept that can obviously reduce so much pain for so many people in relationships globally. That's it's awesome. And that's but that's what I wanted to ask about the pain. You didn't really talk much about the pain involved in in infidelity. Mm. And do you think I'd like you to just expand on that concept? And I suppose what do you, how do you think it compares? Like the pain of cheating in a in a hardcore monogamous relationship versus people that are sort of opted into monogamish style relationships? Is Because surely there must still be a lot of pain. 
Yeah, I, I wrote down the word pain as well. So let's, let's start with that one, shall we? Um, because it's inevitable that there is going to be pain and uh, there are two people involved here. And when you give permission to someone who's written to you to cheat uh, with good reasoning... Have, you ever, have they ever got back to you about the outcome of that for their relationship, their primary relationship? Usually when I give permission to someone to cheat, it's a, in a relationship where sex is no longer a factor, um, where it's a sexless marriage and has been for a very long time, and clearly this is a partnership that's evolved away from sex. Uh, and so the partner who has sort of unilaterally ended the sexual component of the marriage uh, isn't being cheated out of anything that they value. I still think that you have an, an obligation to protect your partner's sense of security and safety and their, you know, that social monogamy that they still may be invested in. So you have to be discreet and you have to be considerate. And discretion means you're not going to fuck their sister and fuck their boss and fuck the neighbors and fuck in a way that gets back to them. And but if it does get back and to consideration them, well, you have to means, live with the lie, don't you? means lying to them. You have to live with the lie. You do have to live with the lie. You have to eat it and walk with it. Um, but I don't think you've cheated that person out of anything they value. But yes, there is pain. If you've made a monogamous commitment uh, to someone and they've made a monogamous commitment to you and they violate that commitment, I do think that you can, that that's painful. That's something you sh- you're going to have to work through mm-hmm. and get to forgiveness. Um, and forgiveness matters. And forgiveness is only important if it's difficult, right? You know, otherwise it's a Pez dispenser. Um, and I get mail from people who say, uh, and calls, you know, I, who will say, I, will wa- I would walk through fire for my wife, I would take a bullet for her, but I can't forgive her. Mm. And a bullet has to be more painful than forgiveness. And if you talk to people who've, who've you know, that moment is usually where you hear the most pain, when the, the discovery Often what happens is that... And the rejection, I guess. And the rejection, but that's part of what's so painful in that moment of when the infidelity is revealed and it's just chaos and drama. Then there's the fallout. Then there's often a... a, You hit a plateau of brutal honesty where there's suddenly... The relationship hangs in the balance. Nothing else worse can happen at that moment. And people who were previous to that revelation... We're worried about saying the thing they couldn't unsay, the thing they couldn't take back. We'll say all of those things. And people who manage to forgive and stay together two years later often will report back to me having a much better relationship now, much more honest relationship now Mm. than they did before the infidelity. As difficult as it is and will be to work through, particularly if you're in a monogamous relationship. It's finding the language, isn't it? It's finding the language and sometimes it's having someone facilitate that, I guess, having that conversation. I I, I will come back to that question there, but let's just grab a couple more because we've only got five minutes left. Uh, So am I due to... Where am I due? Number one, sorry, hello. Uh, I agree with everything that you say, Dan. I'm also in a, I'm in a, a long-term marriage, uh, but these questions have come up for me many, many times about staying in a relationship, and I've had discussions with my husband about it, and um, I wonder if there is something that you could say about when you have sex outside of your marriage, isn't there a danger of, of actually falling in love with another person? It's not just about having sex and then negotiating that back right. into a marriage? There is a danger of falling in love with that other person, but one thing we need to wrap our heads around is that just because you've fallen in love with somebody else doesn't necessarily mean that you've fallen out of love with your long-term partner. We acknowledge that you can... We acknowledge that you can love more than one child, more than one parent, uh, more than one sibling, more than one friend, um, that you could love more than one 
person intimately, sexually, romantically at a time uh, is something that does happen. Unfortunately, what people are told is that you cannot do that. So if you are, you know, having romantic feelings for person B, that is proof that you no longer have romantic feelings for person A. And this, is, for this relationship of longer duration is now a lie. And what we know from the polyamorists is that there's this thing called new relationship energy. They call it NRE. That can very, be very overwhelming and all-consuming. Uh, and that can make this sort of the light of this kind of dim temporarily, and that can be very painful for everybody involved. And I know wherever I speak, I've watched my husband fall in love with someone else. Mm. I mean, we are still together, and we're still crazy in love with each other. Um, and sometimes the, the way you work through that is to let it happen. That's a crush when it's a new person. Um, that is not the same thing as the love and the history and the bond that you and your husband, or me and my husband, share. It is of a different quality. Um, and usually a less duration. Um, but it's difficult, and it's a risk. But people who are in monogamous relationships have fallen in love with other people. You know, one of the questions I get about being not monogamous, is, oh, what about jealousy? It's like, I always look at them and say, do you get jealous in your monogamous relationship? Of course you do. Um, I just get jealous, uh, but uh, for better reasons. <laughs> But it's a risk. But these, you know, this is one of the ways people stigmatize open relationships. Is they talk about this falling in love with somebody else and perhaps uh, ending the relationship or threatening the relationship as if this only happens to people in open relationships or monogamous relationships. When we see it happening to people in monogamous relationships all the time. You see people in committed, like those people who've had eight monogamous relationships in 15 years. If the only way you can fuck somebody else or have an adventure or a new experience or some variety is to end the relationship that you're in, we are incentivizing ending that relationship to get this other stuff that we as humans are programmed and hardwired to want. Variety, new experiences, some strange. You want that. And we have set up a system of relationships and love that says you can't have that unless you mm. end this. And then people do. Now we've got two minutes left, which is agony. Um, so let's just, why don't we just take the remaining questions from the floor and you might be able to weave them into a melange of a one minute answer. I doubt it, but thank you. Sorry. And I don't mean to, if it's something intensely personal, that not, might not be appropriate for us to do it like this, but let's give it a go. Um, hi, Dan. I don't know how easy this will be to weave, um, but you've mentioned a couple times on, the, uh, on your podcast that you read the Dear Prudence column on Slate and that you sometimes agree with her and that you sometimes disagree with her. Her name's Emily Yoffe, and she recently wrote an um, article on Slate that said that obviously people who commit sexual assault are to blame for sexual assault, but that we should also tell young women, particularly college-aged women, basically to protect themselves better, principally by not getting wasted, particularly with people they don't know. Um, there was some furor in the wake of that article, some people saying that she was um, slut-shaming and victim-blaming, and some, particularly parents, saying she was just being pragmatic. And I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, maybe that's all we've got time to cover. <laughs> <laughs> um, just maybe I can just, answer that quickly. There were problems with that article. There were brilliant responses to it. There was a response that regendered the whole thing, that made it advice to men and talking about boys not drinking because uh, alcohol is usually involved when a kid, when a young man rapes. However, I do think it's generally a good idea and good advice for all people of all ages and all genders and every point along the gender spectrum not to get fucking blackout, wasted, drunk in a room full of people you do not know. And I don't think that. 
there were some, I think Emily got some shit wrong in that piece that left her open to legit criticism, but that bit of advice, don't get fucking blasted, wasted, drunk in a room full of people who may not have your best interest at heart, that's good advice. But if you do, yes, oh, there's so much more that could be said about that. Quick question, thanks. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you to quickly vocalize for everyone, because I'm shocked that people don't know about it here, um, the Ignat Sprouter Project, um, because back home in Canada, all over the place, US, etc. But uh, please, thank, you. thank you. The It Gets Better Project, and? I was just wondering if there's no sort of legal difference, getting to the point where there's no legal difference between um, people, same-sex couples in domestic relationships and actually married, why enter that institution at all? And I'm interested in why you personally did that when you have such a progressive view on, on relationships and, and modern view on, on that. Kind of stuff I don't think happens. marriage is necessarily a patriarchal institution. Uh, marriage is what the two people in it say that it is. Um, marriage can be monogamous or not, for life or not, religious or not, can have children or not. Uh, the, the, the hard part for people who oppose same-sex marriage, particularly religious conservatives, is that there's no logical case that can be made for excluding same-sex couples from the institution as straight people currently practice and live in it and have defined it. Marriage is the legal union of two equal individuals, period, the end. They get to make up their own minds about the rest of it and how they're going to live that marriage. Um, so I don't, think, I don't think marriage is necessarily uh, repressive or regressive or, or patriarchal. My marriage is insanely progressive. A marriage can be as progressive as the two people in it decide to make it. Um, and the It Gets Better Project, my husband and I founded the It Gets Better Project to bring the gay youth support group to gay kids, queer kids who are living in parts of the country or the world where there are not queer youth support groups or who have parents who would never allow them to attend one. Uh, and it's very subversive, although it has sort of a goo-goo, up-with-people, safe aura around it. What we've done is we've put... Uh, hundreds of thousands of lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people into the phones, computers, into the pockets and bedrooms yeah. of queer kids who do not have any other queer people in their lives or no queer role models and no perspective on what they're going through. Um, and I'm sure, th I, I know there are tons of videos that were made in Australia. Uh, I've there seen are. them. So there's a website, there's uh, an Australian website too, the It's Get, It Gets Better Project. Dot org. It gets better dot org. Dot org. Um, check it out and spread the word. We've got to finish. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dan Savage. Welcome. Thank you so much.